Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Welcome to Race Treaty. It's May 22nd, 2015, and we're having another edition of Race Treaty with a special guest tonight, one of my favorite people, Najee Mued. Serious, very serious, undoing racism activist, human rights activist. Welcome, Najee. You on air? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, thank you so very much, uh, Brother Robin. Najee, thank you for being here tonight. We've got a couple of things to cover tonight, and usually from Race Treaty, we try to cover from uh, the international uh, lens and also the undoing racism lens in reference to white supremacy and also in reference to international law versus civil law, human rights law versus uh, constitutional civil law. So... Uh, can you give us some background in your experience, Anaji? Because you, you hold a special place not only in my heart and spirit, but also in history and the fact that you were present in Durban, South Africa, at the UN uh, Conference on, on Racism. And as we all know, uh, the preceding weeks in 911 basically uh, did a cover up of that, that event. And uh, we haven't really done had a follow-up uh, beyond the U.S. Uh, walkout and Israel's walkout, and really no explanation in the media uh, since that time. So I'd like you to like kind of speak on your experiences in Durban, uh, Brother Naji. Wow, you're taking me back. We're talking 2001. Yeah. And um, I don't know the numbers of, uh, don't recall the numbers of, um, particularly people of African descent from around the world that gathered. Uh, what I'm remembering is that it was almost like a dream because when you think of the fact of uh, African people being scattered throughout uh, all the five continents, um, maybe four if you disregard Europe as a continent, um, and coming together, and speaking through interpreters 
our interpreters uh, is something that most people of African descent have never ever even experienced or even dreamed about. So we in in the gatherings we we had organized for ourselves. We had Portuguese translators. We had English. We had French. Uh, we had Spanish, of course. Now this is you have to see the, in your mind's eye of a people being scattered, uh, like uh, the story of, of ISIS and, and the Soros being scattered throughout the world and going around gathering ourselves back together again. And that's what that experience was, because we were talking to people we wouldn't normally talk, and we was all there for the same reason, which is for the affirmation of our humanity, uh, the demand for reparations, and uh, continued... Um, Organizing for those things to happen. Uh, Van Boven, uh, the former special rapporteur on reparations, said that you have to, um, for reparations, you have to have compensation, restitution, and rehabilitation. And then he added a fourth. He added a fourth area of monitoring. That after you put those things in place, it has to be some structure in place to monitor the interactions between uh, that the aggressor and those who have been aggressed against. Now, of course, these things are still yet to happen, but the framework and the concepts are coming forward. Um, it was at Durban that um, I had the chance to, and many thousands of others had a chance to witness uh, Fidel Castro speak for, I think, if I remember correctly, I think he spoke for about six hours in the sun without stop, without stop. Uh, uh, we had a chance to uh, hear the, uh, the fab fabulous artistry of Marion Makiba. So it, it, it was the formal uh, conference itself. And when the UN goes to a country and sets up itself, that that territory for the time that there is international territory, it doesn't belong for that moment. The boundaries of 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 the campus belongs actually to the United Nations, which is international. So it wasn't only that which happened inside the international space, but it was also that which happened uh, with the people. And we have to understand um, the significance of this, to have a conference in Durban, which was, in fact, only for whites as their resort town. Now to have an international conference in South Africa, in Durban, and, and people from all over the world, people of color from all over the world to descend there, uh, was a statement in of itself. So there's so many parallels or so many themes that were uh, condensed uh, in that conference that it's a, it's, it's, it's a magnificent thing to, to, to think about. You know, we still need to do some writings from it to capture the experience. I'm only one. Uh, I remember going up to, uh, to visit uh, the Zulu Nation, and uh, there uh, me, uh, the former... Uh, late now ancestor Eddie Ellis, uh, brother um, Ibrahim uh, Abdel Malik uh, Mawid, a good friend of mine, and he and I were raised up through the Pan African Skills Project with Irvin Davis, uh, one of the first NGO representatives. Back, he was an NGO representative for SNCC back in the early 60s. So, uh, so much tradition was linked to that day, uh, the December 12th movement. Uh, was in the lead in terms of uh, having different meetings and, and calling different meetings and, and summits uh, throughout 
the the UN conference. Uh, there were so many things I can't even think of all of them, but I would say that it was truly magnificent. Of course, uh, we were expecting many great things to happen from that, and coincidence? I don't know. Coincidence? I don't. I'm, it, for something to happen as big as that, and then t- and then a few days later when we came back to America, uh, I think it was on that Monday. Uh, 9-11 occurred and then it was almost as if uh, an atomic bomb had dropped, particularly as it relates to a, a media atomic bomb and everybody forgot about the conference. It's almost like it didn't exist. And, and people, what people don't know, that was the third conference on the race. That, was, that wasn't the first. That was the third. And you had different uh, detractors, uh, the same detractors uh, from the first and the second also occurred in the third is an article out and I have to find it by Naomi Klein where she I forget the name of the article but she documents uh, the false allegations that were put forward uh, purposely so uh, by Israel and, and the and Israel lobby to um, push people back from supporting the demands of the conference and also being able to tie their support of the conference to uh, a promise of being defunded. So there was a, a conscious, uh, deliberate, and uh, very uh, dangerous president set after that in terms of punishing people who had the audacity to uh, speak for uh, the principle of self-determination and self-reliance and also reparations, uh, which is, of course, um, that of um, self-healing and uh, rehabilitation. So there's so many things tied, you know, up t- with um, the United Nations World Conference Against Racism that are yet to be resolved. We put the demand for it. Uh, we've heard foolish arguments of saying that now with the genodome that we know that there's only one race, the human race, there's no need to talk about race anymore. Now, of course, that's a very convenient position after you have uh, usurped um, all the benefits from a race structure, not only national in terms of America, but an international economic and political structure. After you have usurped all the benefits by robbing, by pillaging, by murdering, terrorizing uh, those and, and capturing land uh, and uh, benefits of labor and production, it's very easy to say, well, now we can just, you know, forget about the whole mechanism that uh, advantaged me at your disadvantage and say that we won't consider race any longer. So um, it, there were so many lessons to learn from that. And, and that was put forth by the um, the president of um, of um, Senegal at the time. So there, there was <laughs> so many, so much confusion and uh, some really um, very um, dangerous positions put forth. So, so we have to go back and study all the implications of Durban and see how it um, is affecting us now and what we should do from this point forward. Well, thank you, Anaji, for sharing. Uh, I've been brought back also to my take on the, uh, the conference, and uh, the use of words uh, really hits home for me in that the avoidance of the U.S. and Israel uh, to the defining of racism and discrimination in such a way coming out of that conference uh-huh. that it uh, would have been codified for 
for uh, world courts and use of the world's courts. And that, to me, was like the the, the really shock and awe uh, that took place, you know, just prior to 911 with the... Uh, With the uh, the use of words, the the avoidance of a, a, de, a de definition, a universal definition of racism and discrimination, it seems like that's a another uh, fallout from that. And uh, bringing the uh, the UN Conference on Racism to date, uh, we have a uh, decade on the uh, the descendants of African slaves, and um, I've been still curious to wait for us to come together. To organize around uh, around that here in the U.S. Um, you want to speak? You, can you speak to that, uh, uh, Naji? I mean, you 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 come from the undoing racism uh, lens and the human rights lens. Uh, how does that fit in terms of the the language and referencing uh, uh, racism? Because we have, you know, the big debate is uh, ongoing for me every day, uh, where people. Uh, have their opinions as to what racism is rather than there being a universal definition, a legal one also, uh, that we all, uh, can refer to to understand its, uh, systemic framework. Uh, there is, um, a, a movement, uh, for the, for the listeners who don't know of the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. That started with um, uh, Ron. Uh, on his last name right now. Ron Chisholm was uh, Ron was Chisholm. that urban as well? Yes. That's right. Ron was there, and um, uh, his organization uh, started in like about 1980. Him and another brother. Uh, my mind is not on his name right now. Uh, let me see. Randall was also Dr. Vanilla Randall was there as well, uh, um, and I'm not sure if Dr. Richards, Kimberly Richards, uh, was there, but I know that it was a great, uh, a great moment with expectations, very high expectations, and that sort of event. Well, since that time, but yeah, Dunn. I'm thinking of Brother Dunn, uh, who was a professor, uh, and they oh, came. And um, form form you know they kept seeing each other at different meetings and uh, decided that they were complements of one another, uh, both interested in organizing and and creating the organizing methodology that uh, would serve the people. Uh, Ron had won a major suit in um, in Louisiana and. Um, and Dunn had been a professor at a college, so they brought the academic and the street-level organizing together in the People's Institute. And from that, they, um, I don't, in fact, they give credit not to originating uh, the definition, but one that they found to be useful, that racism is uh, access to legitimate power, racial prejudice plus access to legitimate power. Um, and once you, once you put those two things together, a particular propensity towards a certain position, uh, and then having the mechanisms, having the means, having the structures, 
having the resources to enforce that what that propensity is, which is to advantage oneself at the disadvantage of another, uh, then then one can say this is racism. So with that common definition, uh, they have a, a training called Undoing Racism, uh, which is a three-day training, which is phenomenal. Uh, no matter how old one is as an activist, as an organizer, uh, one is going to benefit from that training mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, the perspective that's gotten, and two, uh, being a member of that international community, even though they focus on racism in America, it's really an international community. So that is uh, the community, one of the communities to which I belong, and that's also uh, one that uh, you belong to as well, and I think we even met through through uh, the work of um, the People's Institute for Survival, for survival, survival and Beyond. I believe we met at men of color uh, uh, training uh, a workshop was uh, specifically focused on men of color uh, that brought brothers from Native American, uh, Latino, or Spanish-speaking uh, brothers and uh, Caribbean, and it was uh, an event that took place, I think, in New York, uh, Naji, um, and uh, very proud of that gathering. Um, Yes, the People's Institute, I had always had this issue, Anaji, in that I was involved in a lot of direct action groups, and I came upon this analysis of the People's Institute and had always wanted to bring it to uh, a And Ron had found a a necessary uh, uh, area of society to to deliver this undoing racism training, and that was to the gatekeepers, the human human service agents, the social workers, uh, human services, and otherwise. And I had always felt that uh, there was this need to universalize the definition because you have, you know, definitions coming out of the counter-racist. You have those who still hold that if uh, if it's uh, not in Webster's or that we must adhere to the definition in Webster's dictionary as to what racism is, which is very antiquated. And... uh, and then you have, you know, um, uh, various other uh, so-called definitions of racism, which basically is prejudice. And people were hard-pressed to still embrace the, the analysis, uh, the systemic analysis, as you spoke to, of uh, race prejudice plus power. I know for me it changed my life in terms of uh, my worldview and understanding systems. Um, really, uh, the undoing racism training for me impacted me as a systems analysis, and I've been able to take that model and basically see the functions of institutions inside of it ever since. You know, in terms of understanding uh, the undoing racism uh, uh, analysis, um, and it's really been widely embraced actually by sociologists and those who work in the field of uh, human services and uh, social work. In fact, I believe. Sandy is attempting to bring uh, a mandatory competency of um, racial equity into the uh, the field of social work, if I'm not mistaken. I know that that was one of the results that came out of uh, the think tank uh, that was put on this past year for social workers. Uh, can you speak to that in terms of your work with Sandy and social work? Because uh, I should share with the, the audience also, in reference to uh, Reparations, uh, we automatically think of compensation and retribution and 
and you've brought in another uh, lens and view on the whole reparations process, also in terms of the process of Sankofa and in healing. So I'd like you also to speak to that area in which you've really uh, focused on and enlightened us, brother. Well, I, I guess if you know, in terms of um, activists, uh, and particularly I use the word abolitionists. Uh, Sandy Barnaby is indeed uh, one of the foremost uh, white um, abolitionists that I know and that I'm a very good friend of. Um, she is uh, sitting in the seat of of uh, president of the National Association of Social Workers, uh, New York City chapter. Uh, and when she took that position, she didn't leave anything outside the door. She brought her life and she brought her work um, as a major uh, organizer in New York State uh, for uh, the People's uh, Institute for Survival and Beyond and uh, organizing, I don't know, hundreds upon hundreds of workshops over the number of years she's been involved. And uh, it was really a wonderful thing to witness uh, her receiving an award uh, from the uh, Martin Luther King Nonviolence Center up in uh, Westchester about about a month ago, uh, where she received the, the award uh, on behalf of the Anti-Racist Alliance, which she's a co-founder of, uh, and and does so much work. So you you mentioned her name. I'm giving the audience a little background who this woman is. Uh, her dedication to a new humanity has been proven time and time and time again. And she represents, uh, to some extent, uh, that level of white resistance to the construct of, of racism because we, we can't be fooled uh, by um, the, cons the, the public narrative, you know, that it's black against white. Uh, it's never been that. Um, it's always been human against non-human, those who are upholding an ideal of humanity and those who, who, who are not. And you would have mixed races or you have races, so-called races, or in both of those camps. Um, so she is a continuation of, of people like John Brown uh, in, in terms of, of fighting this, this race construct. So um, you asked about that. So, yes, she is organizing, and, and she's bringing that work to, to her position as the... Um, as the um, leader of of the chapter and she's also been involved with um holding different summits one of them one of them which was um held in washington uh last uh, i think it was in last november where the president of uh, the national organization um they had a, a conference where they brought different um organized and social workers from around the country and we, i think we're going to see that emanate out through the national conference um, as as uh, this this year unfolds, so so we need to bring uh, that definition forward, uh, and we need to uphold uh, the charter of the National Association of Social Workers uh, around the question of social justice, and not allow those who want to have it recede in, into the background. Because you know there's always an ebb and a flow in any kind of movement uh, in terms of what principles are. Um, highlighted what principles are neglected so she is certainly in the forefront of uh, bringing that forward uh, you had asked two questions one was um, around the work that she's doing and what was the second question uh, uh, 
basically that, and and, and of course, you know, uh, Sandy is also elevated and expanded her work to the international laws surrounding racism also and has embraced her. In fact, she was with me in uh, New York at a uh, protest at the United Nations uh, concerning the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And she's embraced that and understands how it could apply in the United States and also the United States' failure to comply with international law as relates to racism. In fact, I wanted to speak to that for a moment yet this evening and about the recent uh, universal uh, periodic review that was done uh, in the Geneva concerning uh, U.S.'s violation of human rights. And uh, although it, it is a, uh, a more of a ceremonial uh, mechanism in terms of unveiling uh, reports on violations, the only really enforcement is the shaming and making people aware that the U.S. is here and domestically uh, in violation of human rights and that these uh, incidents that we try to frame in the civil rights uh, lens are actually human rights violations and I'm speaking of the sentencing, the torture in uh, uh, prisons here in the U.S., the, uh, the uh, school to prison pipeline and uh, I want to speak to that this evening also. Uh, I was reminded by our whole study uh, Read, you know, to speak to the fact that the U.S. made uh, has made some adoptions of some minimum standards uh, for treatment of prisoners, uh, and I'm not sure how that plays into the law. And they also revised rules uh, concerning uh, health care, and uh, it just seems that uh, the U.S. Uh, is aware of its uh, its obligations, and yet it's still um, fall short of embracing uh, and enforcing, in fact, a uh, international treaty that was signed and ratified by the U.S. Uh, you know, we understand about the reservation, which is the loophole language uh, that says that, you know, the uh, the Constitution of Civil Rights basically does enough protection, affords enough protection for our citizens. And so we're still pushing for the fundamental human rights that come out of uh, uh, the uh, the treaty, the race treaty. Let's, let's, Robert, let's let's back up. Um, you mentioned the word human rights, and and again, we don't know uh, how much uh, your readers, your listeners, have really been following that that progression. But Garvey was was speaking about human rights back in in um, in the early uh, part of the 19th century. Uh, and of course, when the Geneva Convention came out in the 40s, um, um, it was uh, Du Bois and, and George Padbaugh who said we charge um, genocide. Okay, after when the convention came out, and then the work of Queen Mother Moore was uh, very much a human rights activist, particularly around the questions of, of reparations. And then when Malcolm um, broke away from the Nation of Islam and formed the Organization of Afro-American Unity, uh, and that was in, what, June, uh, June uh, 28, 1964, uh, he had a strong platform. In fact, in the preamble, he gives, he gives reference to um, the Constitution, he gives reference to the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights, and he was uh, demarcating 
uh, the difference between civil rights and human rights is that it wasn't a question of being a citizen of America that you would uh, be that you should enjoy the benefits of being a citizen, a citizen. But he said just because you are a human being, you should enjoy the rights, the human rights of um, of, of being a human on this planet. So uh, even going back further, going back to uh, the Civil War, uh, when um, uh, General uh, Tecumseh Sherman visited those 29 uh, preachers in, uh, in Georgia, uh, he said, what do you want? And what they said is that we want three things. We want land. We want um, some some mules to work the land, and we also want federal protection because we do, do not want these slavers to come back and and uh, uh, run uh, rampage over us as they've been doing all the hundred years that we have been here. And they were granted that. That was Field Order uh, 15 that gave them that order because generals in the field in war can actually make law, and he made this special Order 15. Uh, Brother Shabazz uh, wrote that book, uh, which is which is really a good book to get. I'm not sure if it's pu- if it's published any longer, but um, from that, um, people called it what 40 acres and a mule. So so we're not talking you know fable. We're not talking a, a fallacy. We're talking something that actually happened. Uh, but of course, when Lincoln was assassinated, uh, President Johnson came into office, and then he started to pull, pull peel back all of the benefits of the Freedmen's Act. Uh, and then it came from, well, we'll give you land if you're 21 years old, if you're a male, we'll give you 40 and mules. Then it went to, well, you'd have to pay for it. Of course, we didn't have any money to pay for anything, so it went away. And, of course, the true uh, abandonment and uh, betrayal happened in 1877 with the Tilton Hayes Compromise. So, then, so that was the end of the Black Reconstruction. So we have been fighting for that. You know, we can even talk about the work of Cali House and... Uh, uh, and also Dickinson, who started an organization for uh, pensions. And Callie House said, if you didn't give us money while you worked us as slaves, well, at least we'll do a pension. And what, what the federal government did was say, how can we trap her and, and isolate her and get her away from the people in terms of how she was educating and organizing them? And, and what they did is said, okay, we'll charge her with mail fraud. This is around 19. This is around what 1898, right around, right around that time, 1915. And then, lo and behold, what was the charge that they charged Garvey with? Mail fraud. The same thing. So we see these tactics being used over and over again to what stifle leadership in terms of the clarity of the question, and and stifle leadership in terms of organizing. That's why we have to always be about education, have to always be about organizing, educate, agitate, and organize. Um, it was Imario Bedelli who took the lead for Malcolm X uh, and asked the question, when, when did we actually uh, consent uh, to this condition, to be enslaved uh, and to even be a domestic colony, as Martin Luther King said? And the, question, the answer was never. We've never consented. So there are a few books that I would ask the, uh, the listeners to uh, look and get. Uh, one of them is um, From Civil Rights to Black Liberation, Malcolm X and the Organization of Afro-American Unity by William Sales, which is an excellent account of not only Malcolm and his contribution to the human rights struggle, but also the meaning of the organization of of African-American unity. I would also recommend to the listeners to uh, get a copy of 
if it's, it might be hard to get one, it's called America, this nation state, the politics of the United States was state-building perspective by the late uh, ancestor Imari Obakari Obadeli. Now, of course, okay. Obadeli was influenced by Malcolm, but it was also another person who uh, fits well in this human rights equation, and that is Yusef Klai. Yusef Klai was a chairperson of the Organization of African Unity in Canada and worked very closely with Malcolm in terms of helping him grow his, his international perspective. Uh, Dr. Cly, or I think, already had his Ph.D. I'm not sure if he didn't have his Ph.D. in 64, 63, 64. He was certainly close to it um, and um, took another route. Of course, uh, Obadelli took the route of a nation-state, you know, the Republic, founding the Republic of New Africa. Clyde took the other, other side of it. He took the side that, okay, we can use international law for what is called a national minority. That is, people who are on the land prior to the formation of a nation state, and they would have certain rights that would supersede everyone else. So those are the two uh, ways in which we can go about um, using human rights to our advantage. And his book is called The Antisocial Contract. Uh, and also, well, he has a number of books. One of them is called The Antisocial Contract. Uh, another one is called International Law and the Black Minority in the United States. Yusef Klai, and Klai also, you got to remember, was the founder of ICRAM, which is the International Human Rights Association for American Minorities, uh, which has a consultative status uh, with the United Nations, of which I was one of their former uh, NGO representatives. to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. I do believe we might have lost Brother Robin Benton. Uh, let me see if we can get him back on the line. I uh, do apologize. Not a problem. Let's see if we get Brother Robin back. I heard him trying to say something, and then we lost him. Listeners, y'all bear with us as we get uh, the host back on the line. Apologies. This is why I'm trying to get a new uh, communication system, get rid of Skype. This happens too much. All right, we got you back, Brother Benton. Hello? Yes, yes. Brother Robin, we hear you. Go ahead. We already took our first, I mean, our only break, but please continue with the program. Well, I apologize uh, for the technical uh, disconnect here. Um, Anaji, are you with us still, brother? Yes, sir, brother. I'm right here. I had, All right. had talked about the two branches of human rights that can be looked at and that has been... Um, used to formulate a strategy in terms of engaging uh, the United Nations, one being that of uh, Imario Bedelity and saying that we are a nation uh, within a nation. So America is not a nation. It's a multinational nation. And he points this out in his book. And as an oppressed nation, uh, we have the right to land uh, in the five states because we have been working on that land for centuries and we fit all the international criteria for that land to be ours, and that was the position of the Republic of New Africa and still is and will continue to be. 
uh, and the other position in terms of engaging the United Nations. Um, so Imari Deli was talking about uh, decolonization, going to the decolonization committee, which he had. Another way that we can approach international law is that, is that a national minority is considered a group of people that were on the land prior to the formation of that state, which we were. So we are, in fact, both and a state, a, a, a captive and oppressed um, colony uh, inside of America, and we also are a national. But the, 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 and both of those things come together on the question of a plebiscite, that we have never been engaged in the process of informed consent of what these international laws are, number one, nor have we have exercised our power to political choice, which is called a plebiscite. So our people will not move forward, not one inch, until we decide that we are a nation and that we have the right to determine our political destiny through an internationally supervised plebiscite until our people understand the meaning of that process and start to organize and demand that process, we will be always considered second-class citizens in this country. Uh, you know, Anaji, that's a point that uh, Dr. Ansari, another uh, uh, guest of ours on the show, Race Treaty, he brings uh, to mind is uh, the issue of nationhood. And, you know, for my own purposes, I've always wondered how we became African-Americans. Uh, was it by general consent, or was there handlers of Jesse Jackson as he campaigned to reclassify ourselves as African-Americans? And uh, uh, at that time, that disqualifies us as from that indigenous status that we were working towards uh, 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 embracing ourselves. And uh, he, he really brings to mind that how do we embrace the fact that we, as, our, our, as we identify as African Americans, are the most genetically diverse uh, humans on earth, and we are indigenous to this U.S., uh, 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 this land here. Uh, and so in identifying and embracing indigenous, that's like a direct path to, uh, to the UN and de declaring uh, ourselves, uh, uh, under a nationhood because U.S. basically is a nation of nations. And yet we don't even, uh, uh, have, uh, human rights, uh, much less, uh, enforceable civil rights, uh, uh, in identifying who we are in this country. Uh, so I still feel like the last vestige in terms of a legal framework for reparations and otherwise a new uh, approach to uh, legal structure lies with the U.N. Although I don't like the U.N.'s history, the U.N.'s uh, lack of leadership uh, in terms of, uh, of African Americans gravitating towards the international arena, uh, we just haven't pushed uh, for leadership coming out of that. And one of the few that did is coming, uh, Dr. Cly, establishing IROM. And if you could speak to the, the mission and the vision of IROM as well, because it is active. Dr. Randall was recently, uh, in Geneva representing IROM. So we can get some background and it's tied to, uh, Malcolm X and continuing the message, uh, of us, uh, needing to embrace our human rights. Yeah, um, I don't have the date in front of me when Ikram was, um, was was created. Uh, as I had said when you were off the air, that uh, it was uh, Dr. Cly who was the chairperson of the Organization of African American Unity in Canada. Uh, so he had a direct relationship uh, with Malcolm, 
and uh, a direct influence for Malcolm because that was his PhD. His PhD is in political science. Uh, so he uh, went on to, uh, after uh, the dissolvement of the Organization of African American Unity, he went on to create ICROM, uh, getting seeking status um, first as an NGO and then getting elevated to the highest level that an independent NGO organization can have, which is in consultative status. Uh, with the United Nations, and, and they've been that, and um, uh, we we lost that brother, you know, a few years ago. And one of the things that I've been speaking to um, the leadership of Victor Rum is to have a memorial for him. Um, he, he's, you know, been coming back and forth was when he was living back and forth to America, doing different uh, conferences and uh, different um, uh, workshops. So we want to uh, really. You probably want a whole program on on him. Uh, uh, it's um, Fareed Muhammad out of Chicago um, is the the main U.S. Uh, representative of um, of Vikram, and one day we'd want to maybe have him on and and, and put the, assemble a panel of scholars. Uh, Clyde has written at least five books: the Anti-Social Contract. Um, he's written um, international law. And, and the black minority United States in the U.S. Uh, he's written uh, a phenomenal book for social, for social workers to read, but anyone, The Popular Guide to Minority Rights, by, edited by Yusef Cly, and a number of other books as well, as well as is, is the black book on Malcolm X, where he talks about uh, Malcolm's life, which is also a, a necessary uh, addition to one's library on Malcolm X and his influence on on the uh, human rights movement here in this country. So, uh, as a scholar and as an activist, um, as an organizer, we have to look at his life and, and bring that forward. Uh, Ikram continues uh, to go to uh, many of the United Nations uh, forums. Um, I've been to many uh, in Geneva, in fact, in the past. Um, when I went to, you, we had talked about the race conference, uh, United Nations race conference against racism in 2001. When I went to um, Durban at that time, um, it, it dawned on me that what was missing was a, 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 another level of analysis of the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the consequences of oppression. And, and that really started my study in, in trauma, uh, and particularly that led to study into historical trauma, trauma that is passed down from one generation to the next, which I'm still studying, and uh, went back and got my master's in social work from uh, Stony Brook University, and I intended to use the education process for something that was useful to me and my people in our struggle, and therefore my thesis was, then I lost my spirit, an analytical essay on the meaning of transgenerational trauma theory applied to people of color nations. So it's not just the individual that's traumatized. You know, I would want to uh, lay the thesis that nations who exist in a, tra a traumatic state uh, will have their culture uh, mutilated uh, and from that mutilation will, will exist creating a culture of survival and not of nurture and therefore the cycle completes itself. Uh, a never-ending cycle, and this is what we see in our community. So, yes, we can talk about uh, white police officers shooting our, our young men, and on the same breath we have to talk about young men shooting each other because that is a form of fracture side, which is the internalization of racism 
and that internal racism inferiority um, led Joy Leary to write her uh, dissertation on trying to kill the part of you that isn't loved. So, so we, we have scholars like Joy Leary. Uh, we have scholars like Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart that have taken uh, painstaking time to examine the issues of trauma and how it um, furthers itself from one generation to the next through the family and through our organizations. And so that so we need a healing agenda. Uh, so most of my work, I would say 99% of all the work that I do uh, from the study on trauma is now to be able to create uh, understanding of it and the healing of it. And therefore, about a month ago, uh, we and a few other people initiated the Society for the Study and uh, Healing of Historical Trauma. So we have to bring our minds together, our resources, our energies together. Um, so if we are pursuing um, compensation, and we should, and we are pursuing restitution, and we should, but both of those things are almost empty if it's not equally um, pursuing that of rehabilitation of our people. You know, it's been said that you give us, you know, $7 trillion estimate of what we should get in terms of 40 acres of mule and plus the interest, it will be gone the next day. So so there's no way in the world that we would be able to uh, take on that. It's, it's, it will be akin to uh, all these people who have hit the lottery and within three years later they're broke. It will be the same exact thing because they wouldn't have grown their consciousness to understand that which they have in their hand and with a consumer mentality rather than a producer mentality, what they'll wind up doing is just giving it right back to the same forces from which they got it. So we have to be, be very careful. So, yes, I am a, a reparations activist, but I'm also uh, a healing activist. So in the struggle, we used to say criticism. We used to say unity, criticism, unity. And I'm saying um, healing, you know, criticism, healing, whatever thing we do, it has to be an element of healing involved with it. Otherwise, that which will come out of that conversation, that what would come out of that meeting, that would come out of that conference, will be the same thing that exists, and we have to raise the healing consciousness and the healing quota and all the things that we do within our personal selves, within our families, within our blocks, within our communities, within our nation. Yes, my brother. To initiate Sankofa, we must go through the healing process. And, you know, uh, hearing what you just spoke on brought three things to mind in the intersection. One was that um, there is the element to international law which is showing the effect. This is something Dr. Randall uh, spoke to, the effects of disparate uh, outcomes also have an effect in reference to racism and discrimination. And uh, subsequently, yes, there is this need for healing. But as you spoke about the, the effects in terms of internalized inferiority and oppression, um, there must also be a focus on the bifurcation of that neurosis of internalized superiority, something that uh, I was not really focused much on uh, and embraced in the field of psychology. Uh, and speaking of healing uh, in a holistic uh, fashion. Also that point uh, in reference to uh, the healing and internalized superiority, you have the issue of the, uh, the psychology association um, and, and how uh, on the DSM 
uh, racism is, is framed or not framed, in fact, or embraced or not embraced, in fact. But the subsequent effects and the necessary healing process are part of the DSM in terms of symptoms of, of victims of white supremacy. So I'm seeing the intersection. You bring up a yeah. really excellent point uh, that it's not just a question of looking at the victims of racism. Uh, which every, all the world, in the way that oppression works, is to um, is to do that is to fast is to shine the light on those who have been damaged by the, the system of racism. Always trying to fix them. In sociology, the, the, the main question is: this a social problem, or is this an individual issue? And they always will tilt towards individual issue. Of course, to do that is to give them uh, a way to rationalize this is a pathology. So historical trauma theory uh, reverses that and takes it out of the realm of, of a colonized definition, which that's all, that's all the DSM 1, 2, 3, 4, and now 5 are, is just books of colonization. That's what they are. That's what they represent. So uh, we have to look at the colonizer. And, and how he thinks and how he moves, look at the systems. And this is a very important shift because to do so is to then understand what is their mentality. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that I was at a lecture with uh, Dr. Frances Ress Quelsing, Quelsing uh, out of D.C., where she has become one of the leading um, psychiatrists on the question of, of racism and why white people do what they do. Uh, and she somewhat agrees with uh, Shekhar Diop uh, from Senegal is that uh, in the formation there's only one race that's the human race people have come from if you will the black stock you know out of Africa but when uh, that small number of individuals those albinos uh, migrated to the north and underwent uh, a genetic transformation in terms of the cold climate of Europe um, they moved away and in that uh, moving away uh, assumed a personality that was really shaped by the environment so so Shekhar Diop says that those he said he calls it a northern cradle and the southern cradle and the southern cradle where it was warm where there was uh, vegetation where there was food food wasn't really the problem um, you can relax you can pick a, your orange or a mango or avocado off a tree uh, not to say there wasn't some hazards, but basically the, the environment would support you. Well, it's quite different when you're living up in, in the northern cradle where you have very short uh, vegetation seasons. Um, you have to rely on meat as, as a way of nourishment, and you have to be very competitive. And that competitiveness will lead to, well, I'll wait and let you fight the tiger, whoever you kill and whatever you get, then I'll come and rob from you. So there was a culture of competitiveness that came out of their relationship to land and to food. Um, Dr. Uh, Nichols um, out of D.C. Uh, speaks about um, what came out of that, the axiology. What was the value system that came out of those environments? Um, and he says for, the, for African people, it's uh, the relationship between uh, the person and another person. Uh, for uh, Asian people, it's a relationship to the group. Uh, for Europeans, it was the relationship to the thing because they had to protect the seed because if they didn't protect the seed, then how were they going to eat? So the thing... I'd like, I like to interpose also and expand not beyond, beyond the cultural 
and uh, the psychological to also a genetic predisposition and the fact that, you know, new science has come out in referencing European, not just climatic differences, but also differences in the genetic makeup in that Europeans uh, hold the, uh, the Neanderthal DNA, uh, whereas Africans do not. And that is a fact, and there may be implications there that are not brought out. Um, there's groundbreaking work with the uh, the uh, the book. Uh, um, what's it called now? Um, concerning the Neanderthals, uh, and but 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 really, I wanted to to talk to you really, uh, Anaja. You brought me kind of on a tangent, uh, in referencing institutions and undoing racism. You have the psychological uh, association where all these dissertations and theories and information uh, and studies and research have come about within the realm of psychology. You also have the institution uh, that establishes the DSM as being uh, uh, culpable in the violation of CAT, the, uh, the Convention for the Elimination you know, of Torture. And so uh, with the torture report that uh, partially came out and basically being uh, uh, kept down out of the media spotlight, uh, it was the Psychological Association that took part in uh, the architect in the uh, torture process. Meanwhile, we have the, these uh, uh, studies concerning, you know, post-traumatic slave disorder and otherwise showing the uh, effects of the cause of white supremacy, you have the main institution to actually embrace the sciences that is actually uh, culpable, as I stated in the uh, the torture report. Uh, how do you feel about that in in terms of coming out of the social sciences and its implications? Well, we have to remember that um, um, psychology um, is connected to psychiatry. And, and the first use of psychiatry in this country was to uh, use it to demonize black people. Uh, when they used to run off the plantation, they called it a drapotomia, which is, uh, you know, the runaway slaves. And the way that you would cure them is that you would have to beat them. So every single profession in this country came out of the construct of white supremacy to serve whites and to bring others under their control for the exploitation. So there's no there's no field uh, in this country that does not have that, that origin. Now what has happened over time, people have forgot that origin and think that it just dissipated. You know, King said that progress is not inevitable and change is not guaranteed. So we have to go back. And one of the principles of the People's Institute for, of Survival and Beyond is that of history. We have to always learn history. We need to always have to bring history into the mix because history will give you the chronology of where things originated, why they are the way today, and what must be done to change it in a different direction. So it is so so not psychologists, social workers, uh, doctors. You know, the whole thing, you're told acres of skin. Uh, there's a book out called uh, Medical Apartheid. So there's no field in America that doesn't have this history of serving racism because that's how it was constructed. Now, the difference is that when people of color became part of those institutions, that's when the critical questions were raised. So we, so, so uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy, when she got her Ph.D., she looked at what post-traumatic uh, slave um, 
syndrome. When uh, when Dr. Maria Braveheart, when she got her degree, she studied historical trauma amongst the Lakota people. So those are people who have gotten, gotten into the profession, looked around, and of course looking at uh, Wellesley, looked around and see how they can use the tools to bring explanation to the world in which we live, how it was informed, and most importantly, how can it be transformed. So, so we have to, whatever profession we're in, we have to look at, as uh, uh, Dr. Uh, William Jones says, we have to do a process of what is called internal criticism. That is, use the documents that these organizations say that they stand on, the principles they stay on, and hold them to those principles. So, and, and that means you have to confront them. That means you have to organize. So, so yes, all these institutions are complicit. And we are... Not- and we are because the only reason why this stuff, the, 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 the reason this whole thing stands together is because people are making decisions along the way that keeps this thing in place. So we are complicit. So we are gatekeepers. All of us are gatekeepers in the system of oppression. We do have a choice of what kind of gatekeeper that we want to that we want to be, and that is certainly eloquently uh, demonstrated by the People's Institute for, uh, for Survival and Beyond. Yes. Uh, that was a good response to what I think is a, uh, a, a crossroads in the field of uh, social sciences when you have the main institution which basically creates the mental health labels that are used by the professionals in the field. I'm talking the DSM and the Psychological Association that basically were the architect of implementation of white supremacy in the way of torture, literally physical torture. And so at the same time as the stiff arms embracing the the psychological uh, neurosis of internalized superiority, because as we, we spoke, uh, oppression has a, has a multiple-pronged uh, 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 dynamic, and it affects the oppressor as well, and those from the ranks psychologically. And so I've always been curious it's about... It's dimensional, it's historical, it's longitudinal, uh, it's a perpetual uh, protection of privilege and power, and it creates uh, social toxicity in all our organizations. So we have to study and we have to transform those, all those different levels and aspects of, um, of oppression. Um, I would also ask the readers to do some research on uh, William Jones, uh, who was an expert on studying oppression. He says oppression, the oppressors will do three things. They will deny oppression exists. You show and prove that it does. They will say, well, it's not me, it's someone else. And you show that it is them, and what they will do is put forth a change and not a correction. And that is to say, when someone is attacked, there is a defect, there's a disability, there's a deficiency that comes from that attack. There was a disadvantage, and, all, and then there'd be multiples of those. And not unless you create policy that's going to address the original healing of those defects, those deficiencies, will you uh, only put a Band-Aid and you would only do a public um, a publicity campaign around the real problems because you would never get to the real problems. So there's a thing called neo-oppression that continues to morph because you never, if you don't go back to the original harm and hurt and heal that, the consequence of that hurt can then be used as a reason to say, well, you're not qualified. Well, of course you're not qualified if you didn't give me the education that you've had. 
you know, well, of course you're going to deny someone the loan if you didn't have the ability to, to acquire capital because you've given people land grants. So, so we have to be very, very uh, skillful, very, very uh, attentive to the ways in which oppression morphs, which is called neo-oppression, so that we confront. That's why the United Nations is so important because it's a, it's, it, all it is is a broadcast system. They, they have very little uh, enforcement rights, but it's a broadcast system. You know, it, it would be ridiculous for someone to say, I'm not going to use a telephone because it's owned by these different corporations who exploit the land. No, we have to use a telephone. We have to use the computer because this is how we communicate with people. So yeah, we it, so so that's what the United Nations is. It's it's a place of international public forum where people can be heard. And I tell you what, there's no uh, liberation movement in the last hundred years that has not come through the United Nations in one form or another. Well, they've not have been in existence in that name. Yeah. So all the liberation struggles, you know, at, at one point was fighting to get a seat at that table so they could be considered what a nation amongst nations. So um, in, indeed, the United Nations needs to be criticized, but we have to use it uh, as a public forum to let folks know what our conditions are, as Malcolm X says, no, any place I go, I'm going to tell the world exactly what's happening to me, and I'm going to broadcast it so we can bring pressure on uh, this country. So um, it was it was uh, almost uh, humorous when uh, Kenny, uh, when West uh, called the president a racist, and he came back, you know, George Bush saying, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. Well, yes, you are. But, and it's, it's a funny kind of thing. They wanted to... Not to break you off, man. We are we're past our time uh, for tonight, and you know I did a misquote in reference to Neanderthals. I was referencing the Iceman heritage and the subsequent science, and in referencing George Bush, I have want to throw another psychological term in the mix as we leave tonight, and that's panorology and the scientific study of evil used for political purposes. And we're dealing with psychopath uh, mentality, and we need to analyze that as well. Um, on that note, uh, I thank you for joining us tonight, Anaji, and our listening audience. And thank you, as always, to our host, uh, my brother, man, Scotty Reed. Peace. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.